0: I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually, continually be in my mouth. Doesn't matter if it's shining or if it's raining, his praise shall continually be in our mouths. My soul, our souls, shall make their boasts in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Amen. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. What a joy! to be with you today, despite a storm warning. You know, I think the church knows that a storm has already unfolded. And uh, storms do not necessarily take us by surprise. We, We actually strive amid the storm. I've been told that once upon a time there was a competition set up, an art competition, And artists were summoned to portray on a 30 by 40 canvas what they understood that peace represented. One artist submitted a very beautiful painting of a mother contemplating or of a child contemplating his mother. He said, that is peace for me. That won the third prize. Another artist came along and he presented his work and it was a pristine landscape with birds and sunshine and tranquility. That was what peace meant to him and that got the second prize. But there was another painting where the artist portrayed a tempest, lightning, storms. Waves, rain. And in the middle of it all was a gentleman on a boat playing his guitar. Not won the first prize. passing medio de la tormenta. Peace amid the storm. You see, that, that's what we are called to experience. Peace amid the storm. We, we, ought, to, we ought to meet the challenge knowing that we have already been granted the victory in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we ask ourselves, as Dr. King asked himself back in the 60s, why have I been allowed to live in such a time as this? He asked himself the question. And in a speech he gave on April 3rd, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee, the day before he was assassinated, as a matter of fact, he told the crowd, you know, I was asking myself this question, time and again, time and again. And on one occasion, I was just, you know, walking about one morning, and I asked a question. I couldn't necessarily come up with the answer. But then later in the day, when the sun came down, and it was dark, I looked up, and I said, oh, that's it. Only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. You see, you wake up in the morning, and you look at the skies, the stars are not shining. It is only when the storm unfolds, when the storm hits, when it's dark enough that we can see the stars. And if you've been asking yourself, why has, why has God allowed me to face this challenge, to be experiencing this situation, this circumstantial reality, the answer is that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. Amen. Can you see the stars? Today we're going to be talking, preaching, about grace. And our text for the morning is taken from the Gospel of John beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. We read the following words. We're going to read all the way down to 18. So please follow through with me. It says, In the beginning was the Word, For from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's... No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. He has made Him known. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You because of the fact that it is sufficient... Thank you for the fact that it is understandable. Thank you for the fact that we have it at our disposal to be sanctified in your truth and to do your will. I pray, Lord, that you would help me explain what you want to communicate through these powerful verses in the Gospel of John. I pray that you would prepare the hearts and minds of those that are watching us online even now and later on, and of those of us that are upon this ground underneath this ceiling and within this walls, may, may your word fall in our hearts and may it bear a fruit 30, 60, and a, and a hundredfold. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen. In the beginning was the word, and the word is Jesus Christ. And the beginning was the Word, and the Word was the means whereby God created the heavens and the earth. As opposed to Matthew and Luke and Mark, John does not give us a genealogy of Christ according to the flesh. He goes right at the heart of the matter, and he claims the deity of Christ from the outset. The word was God. He establishes that in a clear-cut fashion from the get-go. And he was communicating that truth to both Jews and Gentiles. You see, in this gospel, John uses the word logos as a word bridge to reach both Jews and Greeks. The Greeks were familiar with the word logos, and they related the word logos to reason. They did not necessarily associate the word logos to a person. And here John puts a face to the name. The word was God, and the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He actually also speaks of the Trinity here. He says... That the Son is an entity in itself within the Trinity, and it is at the same time God. There's a lot of truth in this first verse of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John. And as you all know, it parallels what? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did God create the heavens and the the earth? Through the Word. Through the Word. So he was there with God in the beginning, and he created us perfectly. You see, when Moses writes, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then in verse 2 it says that the earth was dark and void, you don't have millions of years between one verse and the other. You see, there there are a lot of uh, theists out there that adhere to evolution, to macroevolution, that do not necessarily believe that the heavens and the earth were created by fiat, by decree, through the Word of God. And they try to kind of fit God into evolution. And they say, oh, there's a... There's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. You have millions of years. No, what do you have in verse 1? In verse 1, you have a summary of all that goes after verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What do you have in in verse 1, chapter 1 of the Gospel of John? Is, is a summary, a synthesis of everything that follows. What do you have in the Great Commandment? Is a synthesis of the Ten Commandments. You shall love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. That's the synthesis. In, in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you have the synthesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, evolutionists tell you, no. The, cre- the, the, the world exists just because. Carl Sagan, the famous revolutionists. he died, I think, at the end of the 20th century, 1998-1999, he he used to say that all that you need for the universe to exist is time, force, action, space, and matter. Those five things. There is no God, he used to say, Carl Sagan, the universe is all that is, all there was, and all that will ever be. And the five things that you need for the universe to exist, we see it in the physical world. What did he say? Force, action, energy, time, and space. Didn't I just quote Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning, time... God, force, created action, the heavens, space, and the earth matter (laughs) in one verse. What an amazing economy of words. The word created everything that is. You see, this is important for us to understand because especially in a city like Boston, and I lived here for four years, as the pastor pointed out, I went to Brandeis University straight from the Dominican Republic. Well, I did my last couple of years of high school in Puerto Rico. So straight from my neck of the woods, I wasn't, I wasn't ready to face what I faced here when I, when I came to study economics. People were questioning me, were questioning me about why I did this, why I did that, why I believed in God, why I thought that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. If there are many faiths at play in the world today I was caught off guard and then I had my 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 friends who happened to be science and and biology and, and physics major they, they, they would ask me Jonathan do you really believe this and I went through a crisis you you cannot, you cannot explain Genesis scientifically why why, can we can, why are we not able to explain Genesis scientifically, at least the first nine chapters? Why? Because it was a miracle. Creation was a miracle in and of itself. You cannot explain a miracle in a laboratory. But it is a more reasonable explanation than what Darwin lays out in The Origin of Species, What is science based on? It's based on observation. And here you have Charles Darwin saying that the origination of creation took place through the random interaction of time, matter, and space. And all of a sudden, here we are. Now, let me ask you a question. Was he able to observe the origination of creation? No. It's sheer speculation. The only one that was able to witness The origination of creation was he who set creation into motion, namely the Creator. And he willed to reveal the manner in which and through which he created the world to his servant Moses. That's what we have in the book of Genesis. How do we accept it? By faith. By faith alone. And the word is sufficient. We don't need to see if it corresponds with science. If it doesn't correspond, give science time and it'll, it'll catch up. It's the Word of God. Now, how did God create the world? Through His Word. And who was there at the beginning? Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him... Was not anything made that was made. Jonathan, what does that have to do with grace? We'll get there. Who are we? We are creatures. We were created by the Word of God. We are distinct from the rest of creation because when God created you and me, He didn't merely say, let there be Jonathan and there was Jonathan, let there be Pastor Roberto and there was Pastor Roberto. No, He said, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my time here. I'm going to fashion these creatures in my likeness and image. And I'm going to breathe into them life. They're going to have my spirit. And he made us the crown of creation. You know the word that the Jews used to refer to God? God. One of the words is what? Yahweh. You know that in the Jewish language, they do not use vowels. So if you take the vowels from, from Yahweh, you have the sound of breathing. God put his breath on us. And every breath that we take is a praise that we articulate in some way, shape, or form to he who created us. Todo lo que respira al Señor Jehová. Everything that breathes praises the Lord, whether, whether he is aware of it or not. Whether he is aware of it or not. And that's what precisely Don was trying to convey to the non-Jews, to the Greeks in that context, if you will. You see, they were familiar with knowledge, They were familiar with reason, but they hadn't put a face to the name. And John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. This force, this reason, this wisdom that you praise has a name, and has a face, and has a plan. And in Acts chapter 17, Beginning in verse 22, we have an interesting illustration of how the Word was conveyed to the Gentiles. And if you want to turn to me to the book of Acts, chapter 17, beginning in verse 22, we see Paul at the Areopagus in Athens. Let's read beginning in in verse uh, 22 all the way through... being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Let me make make, make a brief pause there for those that, that think that Genesis from chapter 1 to chapter 9 is is allegory. Paul doesn't think so. What does it say here? And he made from one nation, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Jesus himself refers to, to Adam as a historical figure. If We don't refer to Adam as a person that actually lived, that was... Created by God as the first man upon this earth, then we might as well just disregard the rest of the Bible. Because the manner in which we treat Genesis from chapter 1 to chapter 9 as allegory, as many do in the church, is totally arbitrary. See, why, why are we to, to consider the first chapters of Genesis as allegory and not the rest? It's to- totally arbitrary. So we might as well disregard the rest of the Bible if we don't take God at his, if we don't take God at his word. And here's Paul. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of one of us, For in him we we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You see, Paul says, Paul says, that the Lord has revealed himself in creation to everybody, regardless of of their tongue, tribe, tribe and nation. When he says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. That speaks of what? Of the general revelation of God in creation. The heaven speaks, los cielos declaran la gloria de Dios. The heaven declares the glory of God and the firmament His handiwork. You see, there's a general revelation of God. These guys, the Greeks, had access to that general revelation. The reason through creation and through their conscience. See, Manuel Kant, the philosopher, said he, he couldn't explain many things. And one of them was, this, among them was the starry sky above and the moral law within. He couldn't explain how everything was orderly in creation and how, without nobody putting it in there, he had a moral law within. We know that somebody put it in there, somebody is God, but he couldn't explain it. Now that's the general revelation of, of God in creation it's outside of us and within us the logos is at work even if we do not necessarily know Jesus Christ and his will through the special revelation we have through the Word of God but no one no one has an excuse as Paul says in the book of Romans because of general revelation everybody's going to have to give account because God has revealed himself in creation not only not only his majesty and his goodness and his intelligence but also he has revealed our 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 wickedness why why do we why do we feel guilty when we lie when we steal and when we cheat because we have a moral conscience that tells us that we fall short and that is sin now we go against our conscience time and again and when we do so, what happens? Our conscience is seared. You see, when, when somebody burns his skin to a significant degree, what happens to the skin? It loses its sense of touch. That is what has happened to society, in a sense. It has grown insensitive to God. It has normalized sin on the one hand, and on the other hand, interestingly enough, it has criminalized godliness. Now, wait a minute. This predicament doesn't pertain to those outside the church alone. It also affects us within the church. Let us read further. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What does it mean? What does it mean that he was life and he was light? What did we have with Moses? The commandment is what? Light. Your word is what? Light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Yes, but the commandment does not give us life. It gives us what? Death. Because the commandment just makes us aware of the fact that we are incapable of fulfilling the law. In the Old Testament, we were just made aware of how sinful we are and how incapable we are of measuring up to God. A llegar a la medida de la de la plenitud de Cristo. How would you say that in English? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We cannot, we cannot achieve that standard. We fall short. But with Jesus Christ, not only do we have the light, but we have the life. Not because of us, but because of him. Now, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Further down it says, That he came to his own. And when he he says that he came to his own, he's not speaking only of Israel. He's speaking about the world at large. In In verse 1, John introduces Jesus as creator. And if I create something, I own that something. God created the heavens and the earth and all that is... Within, therefore, he owns, and he came to his own. The master of the house came, and those in the house did not acknowledge him, but rejected him, because they wanted to be masters and commanders. You see, that's the story of our circumstantial dynamics through life. We want to be masters and commanders. Go ahead and, go ahead and buy the fruit. You'll be like God. You see, that that's, that's what Satan wanted when he was in the heavenly places. He wanted to be God. He was given many gifts. He was made beautiful and powerful and talented, but he wanted to be God. And he was expelled from the heavens with one-third of the angels that followed him. And then what did he want to do to us? He wanted to take us down the same path down the same path and he said why why settle for all the trees in the garden if you eat from this one you can be actually like god why settle you see and the problem that led us to disobedience or, or the, the, the whole thought process that led us to committing the act of disobedience was not taking God at his word. You see, Eve started evaluating God. She started evaluating God. I mean, why is God telling me not to eat from this tree if I eat from it, if, if eating from it will make me like him? You see, I'm evaluating God. Why is God not allowing me to do this? That's what we do all the time. We try to put put God in a laboratory. We we, we try to put put him between our ears. Why is God telling me not to do this if everybody else is doing it? I mean, look at this and such. He did that and look to where he got, to a place of prominence. Why is God telling me not to do this and such? We question God. And God is not one to be evaluated. You see, that's the thing. We try to evaluate God as we evaluate others, as we evaluate a world leader, as we evaluate a professor, as we evaluate a company. He was evaluating God. Oh, maybe the the serpent is right. Let me go ahead and bite. And she bit. And Adam didn't exercise his leader here. He just tagged along. And here we are what happened when we sinned our relationship with christ was severed but thank god that the word became flesh and dwelt among us to restore that relationship now 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 whereas at the beginning we were created as a crown of creation and we had a relationship with god after the fall As created beings, we did not have any rights to come before God and ask for forgiveness. Pastor Roberto earlier was saying, we have rights as sons and daughters. But we're not sons and daughters automatically. We're not sons and daughters automatically. We are creatures by default. We are sons and daughters. We become sons and daughters by adoption. The only begotten of the Father is Jesus Christ. We become sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Outside of Jesus, we are mere creatures. You see, I have written a couple of books. I have rights over the book. The book doesn't have rights over me. The book cannot come to me and say, hey, why are you selling me at this price and not at that price? Why did he put me under the table and not on top of the table? We are the book. God is the author. Didn't have any rights over the author. Now, if we are before him as sons and daughters, ahí cambia la dinámica. The dynamic changes. We are there on other terms, not on our terms. You see, because sometimes we abuse the grace that has been dispensed upon us and say, oh yes, ha, I'm asking this in the name of Jesus, therefore it's going to happen because John 4, 14, 13 says that everything that I ask in the name of Jesus shall come to pass. Yes, but if, I, if you ask something in the name of Jesus, it has to correspond with the character of Jesus. If not, it's not going to come to pass. If I go before thus and such a person in the name of Pastor Roberto, and what I'm asking is not in in correspondence with the character of Pastor Roberto and line of Judah congregation, I'm just using and manipulating my relationship with Pastor Roberto. Now, if what I ask in the name of this congregation is is in correspondence with its values, with its principles, with its mission, and with its vision, then... It will come to pass in the name of Jesus. How are we we using our relationship with Christ as redeemed people of God? You see, we know the word. We know the word. He has come to, Jesus, Jesus comes to his own Sunday after Sunday. And as we meet throughout the week, he comes to his own. But sometimes he's not necessarily received by his own as he demands to be received. You see, we know the logos, but we don't have the pathos. We know the word, but we don't have the passion. We don't have the passion, and sometimes we also lack the ethos, the character, and the commitment. But we want the benefits of the word. We want the benefits of the logos. The Greek, as a matter of fact, Aristotle, used to say that in order for you to deliver a good message, you need to amalgamate those three factors, logos, pathos, and ethos. You need to interweave the word with passion, and even as you articulate the word with passion, you ought to represent the message that you are communicating in order that Whatever is it that you're communicating has weight, has power, has consequence. So we know the Word. We come here Sunday after Sunday. We do our devotionals. But sometimes we do not necessarily pay life service to the Word. We pay lip service to the Word, but not necessarily life service. And that's why the Word does not come alive in us and through us as it ought, despite the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. To what? To justify us. Now, the great news is that the Word not only came and dwelt among us, but what He left, He sent His Holy Spirit to dwell within us. So that Word now is In our hearts and in our lives, giving us what? Power over sin. Power over sin and death through Jesus Christ. See, we are justified by grace. We cannot do anything to earn our our salvation. It's, It's by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone that we are saved. You cannot do anything. Now, what what do you have to do? There's one thing that you have to do. What is it? Believe. And and, and that and and that is not of us either. What does Paul say in Corinthians, sorry, Philippians chapter 2 verse 13? Who can help me? es el que pone el que el querer como el hacer. He's the one that works both the capacity to will and to act for what? For what? For his purpose. For his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. So the fact that we have faith in God does not even come, we cannot even boast on that, on the fact that we have faith in God, because that comes because of his grace toward us. Now, if we have received that grace, We ought to bear fruits. You see, if faith is the fruit, obedience... I'm sorry, if faith is the root, obedience is the fruit. And what is the fruit of the faith that we profess is sanctification, is power over sin. Nothing more, nothing less. And it says, the true light nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." You see, that's the doctrine of irresistible grace. We were born into the family of God, not because we said, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, although we did say that, but it was not because of our will, but because of His will operating in us. Now. As we consider this word, it's very important for us to understand the fundamental difference between the created and the begotten. You see, that chair is a creation. Every creation is created in the likeness and image of he who creates it. That chair has a back, it has legs, some chairs have arms, They look like us, like human beings. But the chair, as opposed to us, we, we've been begotten, not by God, but by our parents, they cannot self-replicate. They cannot self-replicate. See, I was begotten by my father. I look like him, uh, an ameliorated and improved version because of my mother. <laughs> and I have... A little one, Olivia, who's three, turns three now in September, and one on the way, I don't know whether it's a boy or a girl, but they, thank you, <laughs> Olivia looks like me, and the, and the one that's on the way, he or she will look like me, but an improved version because of my wife, of course. You see, my, my mom died when I was six, my father died when I was 21, but I've been able to keep on keeping on. Whereas he died, there is life beyond death if there is a begotten being in operation. As opposed to the chair that does not self-replicate, as opposed to the chair that does not have information, logos, whereby it can replicate and disseminate the message that it contains. all of us have information, we have the logos. But in order for us to beget, we necessarily need the pathos, the passion, and the commitment to walk in that direction. You see, when my father transferred information to my mother, there was passion involved. I don't have to draw a picture. There, were, there, were, there was passion involved. In order for us to witness Jesus Christ just like John witnessed Jesus Christ, we need to be passionate about Jesus Christ. ¿Qué dice el Salmo 23? What do we read in Psalm uh, 23? Unges mi cabeza con aceite mi copa está rebosando. You anoint my head with oil. My cup, what? Runs over. If you're not running over with the logos and with the pathos, then you're, no, you're not going to have a positive influence in your midst. You're not going to beget. You're not going to obey God's word in fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, are we overflowing with Christ in our lives? Or are we overflowing with worry? Are we overflowing with uh, pride? Are we overflowing with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, what are we overflowing with? That's a, that's, that, that's a question that has a very straightforward answer. We are overflowing with that that we spend time with. You see, you're, you're thinking, is determined by your eating jonathan i I had cornflakes this morning i'm not thinking about cornflakes well we eat not only through our mouths we eat also through our eyes and through our ears what are we contemplating what are we listening how how is faith built in your life is by hearing and hearing the word of god if we're paying attention to god's word if we're obeying god's word then we're overflowing with god's word if we're paying attention to what the world has to say about how we should live and who we should associate with and we're going to be overflowing with something else. Yes, we have freedom, but we have a Lord and his name is Jesus Christ. And, you know, sometimes we're very enthusiastic about embracing Jesus as Savior, but we forget the fact that he is Lord. And And if he is Lord, we are what? His servants. We merely obey him. Now, the word for servant in the Greek is duolos, which actually translates into slave. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are Christians. We're little Christs. And Christ became what? A bondservant to God. So if we are to follow Christ, we are to become like Him, and we become bondservants to Him. Interestingly enough, as we serve Him as bondservant, as a slave we are free in that relationship with him because of who he is nonetheless he is lord he is lord you see we have that that relationship with god he is our abba he is our father our father who are our father who art in heaven but we need to balance that hallowed be thy name hallowed be thy name yes he's our daddy we can approach him with confidence But his name is to be what? Hallowed. It's to be sanctified. And we are to be sanctified in and through it. We are to be set apart. And how are we set apart from the world? It's through his word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was what? Dark and void. How did the cosmos materialize? It was through his word. And what did his word do? It separated light darkness, darkness waters from waters and then the whole organized creation that we behold came about now we don't see what actually was back in the beginning because what we see today as you know was severely altered by noah's flood but we see a remnant of it, and even the remnant of it is beautiful. But the manner in which he created order was by separation, and the manner by which he separated was through his word. So how are we to be sanctified? Through his word. And what's the evidence of the the fact that we have been sanctified through his word? That we are separate from the world. Oh, Jonathan, but we are in the world, yes, we are in the world. But we ought to be like Noah's Ark, you see? We, we ought to navigate above the waters. If we let the waters of this world get into our boat, then we sink. So yes, we are here, but we're not supposed to be very comfortable here. You see, there are some best-selling books out there that say, oh, your best life now. Your best life is not now. Right. <laughs> We're looking forward to glorification. We're sanctifying ourselves ourselves, through the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you what, that's where synergy comes in. Justification is by faith alone and Christ alone. Now, sanctification is hard work. It takes discipline. Of course, there's the Holy Spirit operating in and through us, but the process of sanctification is a synergistic, not a monergistic one. So are we being disciplined in what has to do with aligning our lives to God's Word, to God's, expectation, to God's expectations for us, or are we aligning ourselves more with the world's expectations? But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born out of blood, we're of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, that, that's, that's where, where the Greeks were blown away, that the word became flesh. That, that's where, where, where the Pharisees actually also were blown away because they, they, they saw... They 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 were able to experience God up to that point through the study of His Word and through His presence, which came down every now and get every now and then, in the Holy of Holies. Now we get to experience what my dear brother referred to earlier in the service as the Shekinah continually, because His Holy Spirit dwells within us. He dwelled. You see. That, that, that word dwelling has special significance in the Jewish context because the Jewish people used to, what, dwell in tents. See, God made a tent within us, and he dwells within us, but we do not necessarily live as if he, as a matter of fact, dwelled within us. And the word became flesh. And it dwelt among us. And, and we saw his glory. We saw his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you seen the glory of God in your life? Do you see the glory of God in creation? Do you see it in His Word? Do you understand it through His Holy Spirit? If the answer is yes, then we ought to be witnessing. We ought to be proclaiming His truth. We ought to be fulfilling the Great Commission. Wherever we are. In the home, in the workplace. I'm not telling you to start giving tracks at your workplace. We have to be astutos como la serpiente. We have to be wise as serpents. In the good sense of the word, of course. But we have to be witnessing. You see, if your co-workers are comfortable making a an inappropriate joke around you, then you and you laugh along, then then you have to do some introspective analysis and ask yourself whether whether you are living for Jesus Christ, whether you are possessing the faith that you are professing. If you just sit down and have lunch with your coworkers and there's no word of thanks, not that you're going to pray out loud, but you bow your head and you say, thank you, Lord, for the provision on a continual basis and people observe that. If if you're just, you know, sinking your teeth on that which is before you, just like everybody else, then you're not necessarily witnessing. Oh, the thing is that they'll notice I'm different. Well, that's the point. That's the point. You see the light, it says up here. It says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, imagine that this room is pitch dark and all of a sudden I turn up a match. The great darkness in this room is not going to overcome that little light which was just kindled. And what is darkness? What is darkness? What is the greatest darkness that we experience in the flesh? It's death. But since we have received the light of Christ, not even death overcomes it. That's why it says, actually, Jesus told Peter and the rest of his disciples that he would edify his church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. And Hades is death. See how many Christians have been martyred throughout the history of the world? And Christianity is alive and well today because his kingdom is what? Forever. Forever. The body they may kill, his truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. But we need to shine that light. See, I'm from the Dominican Republic. When we, when we hear that we ought to be light and salt, the first, the, the first thing that comes to mind is sazon, savor. Oh, we, yeah, we're going to spice things up. <laughs> no, what does, yeah, salt spices things up. But salt also preserves. Preserves. So this societal mass is in the process of deterioration. If we are here, if we are salt in life, we ought to, to put the brakes on that process of erosion. How do we put the brakes on it by witnessing? Somebody, somebody, uh, if somebody is about to commit a crime or to articulate a profanity or to do harm to a third party, and you're in the midst, your very presence ought to put a halt to that proclivity that your neighbor has to sin and that we ourselves have to sin but if you keep the salt in the shaker it's not going to fulfill the will of his maker la sal tiene que salir the salt needs needs to how how are we saying we need to run out run out of that shaker in order to influence and fulfill the will of our maker Amen. are we going out church or are we staying comfortable within our walls comfortable within our little bible study group are we witnessing beyond the sphere of the church and within this, this sphere of the church because sometimes we see church as a social club oh yeah i go there to fellowship i go there to have a good time to eat pizza, if you feed them, you will leave them. So we're here to be challenged. We're here to be in some way, shape, or form offended and, put, and be put in un- uncomfortable situations because of our sin as we are in the process of being sanctified. And that challenge comes directly from the Word of God. As we worship and, it's, and as we seek to submit to His perfect will. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the rights to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glorious as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, this was he of whom i said he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me you see you see the 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 importance that john gives to the deity of christ you see here's john he's going to be baptizing jesus in about a chapter and a half or two chapters forward and he's saying that jesus was before him what is he doing he's acknowledging jesus as god Further down the line, the Pharisees questioned Jesus' authority. With what authority do you do do this and that? Are you greater than Abraham? What was Jesus' answer? Before Abraham was, I am. And they just wanted to throw stones at him because they knew what he meant. They connected that proclamation. They connected that statement directly to what happened in Mount Horeb when Moses himself was was asking God listen I'm, I'm going before the people I am going to communicate to relay your message but they're gonna ask me who are you what's your name that's how we think as human beings we are created beings but we think that everything has an origin everything has a name everything has, everything has a creation It is beyond our capacity to discern the fact that God is not a created being. He has always been. He is self-existent. He is the uncaused cause that caused everything that we behold. He is. He is. I am has sent you. I am has sent you. And The Pharisees wanted to stone you. This guy came from Galilee, we know his parents, he's a son of a carpenter. They didn't know the word, they didn't know the logos as God. Do we know him as he truly is? Or are we just approaching Jesus and the gospel and living out our Christianity out of some head knowledge and tradition that we've built over the years? Do we know him as the I am? And are we willing to put ourselves in a position similar to the one that our lord and savior was put in when he proclaimed that truth amid the unbelievers they wanted to stone him, and stone him they persecuted him and as he took upon our guilt to restore our relationship with the father he was killed and if we are his followers we are to expect to be the object of what our Lord was object of when He lived in this world. Now, if we are to be persecuted just as our Lord was persecuted, we also ought to be resurrected even as He was resurrected and glorified even as He was glorified. So let us look forward to that. Let us look forward to that manifestation and fullness of grace that is in the process of materializing. The best is most definitely yet to come because our hope is not in the here and now, is not in this time and in this place, but is in the heavenly places, is in the kingdom of God that knows no end, the kingdom that is forever and ever by His grace and in His name.